0: Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to take. I don't know if my mother was a believer or not. She was certainly a churchgoer, at least when I was younger. But I don't know if she had a personal faith. And by the time that I came to faith, she was so far gone in dementia that we could never have a conversation really about anything. However, she had been taught this prayer by her mother and her mother by her mother before her. And so she taught it to my sister and me when we were very young. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray thee, Lord my soul to take. It's a great prayer. Although I suspect some people today would um, question whether it's wise to, talk, to teach children to think about death. Still a great prayer. It's a very practical prayer. Because it's a prayer for protection. Because when you're asleep, you're vulnerable. Bad things can happen to you, even if it's only bad dreams. And it's a prayer of faith. Faith that whatever happens, whether you wake up tomorrow morning or whether you don't, God has you in the palm of his hand. It's a great prayer. Have you ever noticed how babies seem to fight going to sleep? Think about it. You're barely aware of yourself, but you like this world that you've discovered yourself in. All these sights and sounds and smells. It's full of light and color. And then there's these funny round things that come into your field of vision and say nice, soothing things. Those would be the the faces of your family. But then every so often, you feel yourself being dragged down into a dark place. You try and keep your eyes open, but it doesn't work. And eventually you give in and everything goes dark. Then you wake up and do it all over again. Eventually we learn that the world doesn't cease to exist when we fall asleep. Our family will still be there when we wake up. And we ourselves will continue on. But sleep, going to sleep can be scary. So it's interesting that almost the last thing that Jesus said on the cross was a child's bedtime prayer. One commentator says that the verse that we're looking at today was a prayer that every Jewish mother taught her child to say last thing at night. And as the night came on and the darkness grew, a Jewish mother would teach her children to pray, into your hands I commit my spirit. And just as my mum taught me to pray, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to take. So Mary would have taught Jesus very early on to pray Psalm 31.5. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. And that's what Jesus prayed on the cross with one word added, Father. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Because Jesus has moved beyond the crisis of faith that we looked at a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the text, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's returned to his habit of calling God Father because this is a prayer of faith and trust and a prayer for protection in the face of great darkness. Jesus is about to die. As I keep coming back to, Jesus is both human and divine. As a human being, he's about to go somewhere where no one has ever gone and come back from. Philippians 2 says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Jesus faced death as a human being. Philippians says that he emptied himself and took on human form. There's a lot of debate about what Paul meant when he said Jesus emptied himself. I'm not going to go into that debate here. But if you're interested in following up on that, you can Google the word kenosis, which is the Greek word for emptiness. For me, I think it means that he played the game of life on the same terms as we do. He didn't cheat. He didn't take shortcuts. If you're a Star Trek fan, he didn't get up to any of the antics that Q does on Star Trek or for that matter, the antics of Bruce in Bruce Almighty. He healed others. He raised others from the the dead. He fed others miraculously. But he never used his divine powers to make things go nicely for himself. He didn't miraculously make bread for himself when he was hungry. When he was thirsty, he asked for a drink. And when Jesus faced death he faced it as a human being with no performance-enhancing divine additives. He faced the unknown just like each one of us will one day. That's not to say that as he hangs on the cross, the future is all a great mystery to Jesus. There's a plan. He knows the plan. He was involved in making the plan. The Holy Trinity in eternity past sat down, as it were, and drew up the rescue plan for the human race. That plan was that the eternal word of God would become a man and live and die in our place in order that we might be restored to fellowship with God. Matthew 20, 17, it says, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. That's the plan. Jesus knew the plan. But there's a world of difference between knowing the plan and working the plan. It's like those trust exercises that you do in drama class at school. You know, the ones where you close your eyes and just fall backwards, trusting that there'll be somebody there to catch you. Or where you stand in the middle of a circle of your your, classmates and you close your eyes and you fall backwards and somebody catches you and pushes you off to somebody else and then they push you off to somebody else. So eventually your feet are still in the middle of the circle but your body is whipping around the circle like this. There's a world of difference between knowing that other people will catch you and believing it strongly enough to close your eyes and trust them to catch you. Jesus knew the plan. But the plan wouldn't work unless he trusted his fa- heavenly father to catch him. Because once he died, he'd be dead, like really dead. He knew what was supposed to be ha- supp- he knew what was supposed to happen, but he'd have no control over it. Like I said, he'd be dead. C.S. Lewis captures this idea really well in the Lion, The Witch in the Wardrobe. Aslan, the Lion who is a picture of Jesus in the book, offers himself in the place of Edmund, who had betrayed him to the white witch. Just before Aslan goes to offer himself up to the witch, he's very sad. He's making arrangements for everything to run well once he's gone. He knows that the deeper magic from before the beginning of time says that if an innocent victim willingly dies in the place of a traitor, then the bonds of the curse are broken and both go free. But as he says, the deeper magic has never been tested. He doesn't know it will work, but he has faith that it will work. And it's bad enough that Jesus is facing death. Each one of us will face death, not knowing what's the other, on the other side, trusting that God will be true to his word and take us to himself. But Jesus is also God. God can't die. So how does that work? This week I went back and looked at some systematic theologies, just to make sure I didn't accidentally say something heretical in this message. There's a great series by Thomas Oden where he essentially collates what classical theologians have said about God from the earliest church fathers all the way up to the nineteenth century. So, in interest of full disclosure. If I make reference to John of Damascus or Gregory Nazianzus, who actually lived um, in uh, Cappadocia, um, it's probably because I've been reading Odin, not the originals. Anyways, a lot of wise and learned people have done a lot of heavy thinking about how Jesus can be both God and man. and One of the core ideas is that Jesus had two natures, human and divine. So that meant he had two two wills, human and divine. But his human will was always in submission to his divine will. And that's why he can be a model of obedience for us. We too can submit our human wills to God's will. Not as perfectly as Jesus, but certainly in the same way as Jesus. Likewise, as he was facing death, it was in his humanness that he faced it. Because he would really die. His human soul would be separated from his human body, and that's what death means. Millard Erickson, a well-respected evangelical theologian, puts it this way. He who was the life, the creator, the giver of life, and of the new life that constitutes victory over death, became subject to death. He who had committed no sin suffered death, the consequence or wages of sin. By becoming human, Jesus became subject to the possibility of death. That is, he became mortal. And death was not merely a possibility, but became an actuality. By becoming human, the word of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on the possibility of death. And Philippians 2 says he followed that path all the way. Verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in human appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Gregory of Nyssa, another one of those great fourth century theologians from Cappadocia, he wrote, "'The birth makes the death necessary.'" He who had once decided to share our humanity had to experience all that belongs to our nature. How human life is encompassed within two limits. And if he had passed through the one and not touched the other, he would only have fulfilled half his purpose, having failed to reach the other limit proper to our nature. On the cross, Jesus was facing death. There was no way around it. Even though he knew what the plan was, even though that he knew that the plan was that he would rise again, there was no way around the fact that he was facing death as a human being. And if you look through the New Testament to how Paul and others talk about Jesus' resurrection, you'll find that it very rarely says that Jesus rose from the dead in the sense that you can understand it as being something he did himself. A couple of times in John, John's Gospel, Jesus does say, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And I will lay down my life of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority, authority to take it up again. But in many places where our English Bibles do say something like Jesus rose from the dead, the Greek more often says something more like his rising from the dead or to rise from the dead, which doesn't really work in English. It's usually more concerned with the fact of the event rather than the way it happened. As to how it happened, particularly in Acts when Luke reports how the the apostles preached the resurrection it's always about how God raised Jesus from the dead Acts 2.24 but God raised him up Acts 2.32 this Jesus God raised up Acts 13.33 God has fulfilled this to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Acts thirteen thirty four. As for the fact that God raised him from the dead. Acts seventeen thirty one. God has fixed a day on which he will pl- judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. See what I mean? Now, I apologize at this point to people who hate grammar, but this is important. We tend to say, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is the subject of the verb. He's the one doing the rising. The apostles preached, God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is the object of the verb. It's God, the Father, who is the subject. In other places, actually, it mentions the Holy Spirit raising him from the dead. He's the one doing the raising. So as Jesus hung on the cross that that Friday afternoon... As he looked into the darkness ahead of him, knowing he would die, knowing that he would be to- totally helpless, he prayed what was probably the first prayer that Mary ever taught him Into your hands I commit my spirit. So when Jesus asks us to live by faith, he's not asking us to do something he didn't do himself. As this prayer shows, he too had to put himself into the hands of his Father believing that his father would raise him up again. In a very real way, we are saved by Jesus' faith in his father before we are saved by our faith in Jesus. And you see that in a number of places in the New Testament where it talks about our being saved by faith in Christ. And the Greek could just as easily be translated as the faithfulness of Christ. Christ. It's actually a question of whether it's an objective genitive or a subjective genitive, but that's way too much grammar for most people. My point is that it is Jesus' faithfulness to his mission that saves us. His faithfulness in going to the cross, his faithfulness in dying in our place, and his faithfulness in trusting that his father would raise him up. This is what saves us. Without it, there would be nothing for us to put our faith in. John Calvin says about this passage, Let us now remember that it was not in reference to himself alone that Christ committed his soul to the Father, but that he included, as it were, in one bundle all the souls of those who believe in him, that they may be preserved along with his own, so that the Heavenly Father, for his sake, takes them into his care. He's saying that when Jesus prayed that prayer into your hands, I commit my spirit, he included us in that prayer of faith, that we were bundled together with all those who believe in him and given into the father's safekeeping. It's what Paul talks about in Ephesians when he talks about being in, it's in Christ that we are saved. One of the great themes of Ephesians is that we are in, is only in Christ that we are saved. And this is at least partly how that works. As we look to Jesus and put our faith in him, we are included in Jesus' own prayer to the Father, and that Jesus commits our spirits with his into his Father's hands. And it also means that as the Father raises Jesus from the dead, he will also raise us from the dead. That's a future event for us, but it's anchored here in history in Jesus' prayer of faith. One practical outworking of all of this is that it gives us a model for how to die. This has been a recurring theme in this series, but that's only to be expected. We're reflecting on Jesus' last words on the cross, and he's dying. And if we're called to follow him in how we live our lives, we're also called to follow him in how we leave our lives. I've mentioned before that the Puritans stressed that part of the Christian's witness was dying well. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He lived well in large part because he lived a sinless life. He consistently submitted his human will to the will of God. And there was no time when he didn't follow the will of the Father or love others throughout his life and even in death. He loved God and his neighbor. He died well. None of us is going to die that well because none of us has lived, none of us has lived a sinful life. Sorry, a sinless life. But perfection isn't essential for dying well. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace after he'd been involved in the slave trade for years. Now actually, a year or so ago, I was reading a history of the British Merchant Service, which isn't nearly as boring as you might think it would be. And it turns out that Newton continued in the slave trade for years after his conversion. It took a crisis of faith to convince him that it was wrong. So unlike the way it's often told, his story is not a nice, neat, clean tale of moving directly from darkness to light. It's much more complicated than that, like most of our lives. Anyways, Newton had died. While, if Newton had died while, while still in the slave trade, it probably would not have been considered a good de- death. As it was, he was given grace to change and find ways to love God and neighbor. In Acts 7... Stephen is stoned to death by an angry mob and he follows example of his Lord and prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Calvin says that anyone who follows Stephen's example and trusts Jesus will not breathe his soul at random into the air. He or she doesn't just let go of their life at random, but rather gives it into God's care. and That's a good death. The current crisis with the coronavirus has brought death into sharp focus for many of us. Yes, more people will die from the flu this year than from coronavirus, but that's normal. Coronavirus is new, unusual, frightening, like the darkness to a child. Some of us have friends or family who are at risk or who have gotten sick and are struggling to breathe. I think many of us have felt that death has come a step closer to us than we're used to. Psalm 30, 31, 1-5 to says, In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, Lord, my faithful God. This is a prayer that we can pray whenever we feel overwhelmed, whether it's by big things or little things. But more than that, it's a prayer that we can pray in our final hour as Jesus did trusting our heavenly father to carry us safely in his hand let's pray now I lay me down to sleep I pray thee Lord my soul to keep if I should die before I wake I pray thee Lord my soul to take Lord Jesus as such a simple prayer but it is such a profound prayer one in which we put our entire being into your hands, trusting that whatever happens to us, you have us safe from whatever comes. Lord Jesus, I pray that in these days, whether in those words or in other words, we would consciously put our lives into your hands in the same way as you put your life into the hands of your Father, trusting that whatever happens, our life is safe there. In your name we pray. Amen.